From Harris Studios, this is Accounting for Tomorrow, an accounting and advisory services podcast for community leaders with a passion for change. We are ready to look past the numbers and ensure that today's planning efforts create success for tomorrow. Welcome. I'm Josh Tyree, CEO at Harris CPAs, and today I'm joined by Robert Shappy. We're excited to also welcome back one of our tax partners, David Hutchinson, as our guest speaker today to talk about individual taxation and year-end planning. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Josh. Thanks. We've seen a ton of volatility in the last year, inflation and rising rates. Last podcast, we talked about that uh, regards businesses and, and tax planning for businesses. But this podcast, we want to talk about individual taxes and how it's going to affect ourselves. Tax planning with your CPA and trying to identify opportunities for reducing or deferring or accelerating your tax obligations is more important each year as we try and conserve that cash and use it in the best way possible. As we approach year end, now's the time for individuals to really review their 2022 and 2023 tax situations and take action. So today we're going to chat about some of our suggestions for individuals to consider. To kind of get us going, I often hear a lot of talk about the effective tax rates or the effective tax rate tables, but then also about the marginal tax rates. So can one of you explain to me what each one of those are and then what's the difference and why do we have two different rates? My view on it, usually how I answer it is effective rate is basically after all your deductions and the income resulting from that compared to the tax liability. So that's taking everything into consideration. The marginal brackets are set up by the IRS. There's the volume of marginal brackets that are set up from the 10, 12, 22, 24, on up to 37%. What the difference is, and I try to explain to people, is when we're taking a deduction, we need to look at the marginal brackets. And the reason for that is that's where we save first till we get pulled out of that bracket into the lower one. Now, on the effective side of it, I think it's good to look at overall, but I don't rely upon that as much as I, the marginal rates. I don't know about you, Robert. I agree. I think it's it's really important to look at tax strategy over a period of years. And so I always like to talk to my clients about our objective is pay the lowest tax over their lifetime, not in one any given year. Because we can generate enough tax deductions to take their income down in one given year, say, if it were possible for us to take them down to zero, that would be a bad scenario because we would be foregoing the lower bracketed income, the 15%, the 10%, or the 12%. We would lose that tax rate for the following year. So our objective is to figure out what the marginal rate is and to try to reduce income to get down to the marginal rate that we're looking for on a long-term basis so that their taxes over time are less, not in any one given year. The marginal tax brackets are inflation adjusted. So there is some change in them in 23 over 22. So that that is a factor, but definitely you're in planning for individuals. One of the first things that you want to do is figure out what the marginal tax rate is, because that's what your benefit will be for the tax deductions that you come up with. Right. And those marginal tax brackets, they're going to range from about 12, 12% up to 37% for federal. That's correct. And then you have to add state on top of that. 
Correct. So the state also has a bracketed system, but it's very, very quick to get to the top rate. So as we look at, at individual tax planning for the year, a lot of it is, you know, time, like you were saying, reducing, trying to get into that mar- the lowest marginal rate by a lot of times using timing differences, right? Pushing income or deductions from one year to the next to try and maximize the lowest marginal rate we can. So what are some timing topics that you talk about with your clients as it relates to individual tax? Well, um, typically we get involved talking with clients when they have large capital gains. And so we'll look for opportunities either to exchange, if it's a real estate capital gain, exchange it into another property whereby we can defer that gain or secondarily if we can do an installment sale. So if they are receiving gains from the sale of an asset that we can receive that cash over a period of time, then we can do an installment sale treatment and push the gain into the into the future. So one thing I, I hear a lot, and that's, that's great, is I've made a lot of income from my business. I'm going to use these capital losses on my stock to offset it, which is not right. Correct. So David, maybe kind of go over types of income when we're talking about timing and how that impacts your tax planning at the end of the year. I always refer to ordinary income when we're talking about tax planning as bad income because it's hard to defer it. It's hard to do things with it that you may be able to be flexible with like you can with capital gains or capital losses. One of the critical things is people do come up with this concept that I'm going to have a large loss from a, a capital asset sale and I can offset my ordinary income. The rule is you can't. You can only do it to the extent of $3,000. And that's very critical in this market today is we talk to clients about, hey, let's do some harvesting of losses. We're not necessarily looking at that to offset ordinary income to a great extent, but we may be looking at it to take advantage of a potential capital gain sale that they have in place or strategizing to do in the future it still allows us that $3,000 offset. We won't lose it if we have capital losses in excess of $3,000, but we've got to find a way to strategize to use it in the future, whether that's when the market turns and goes up and we have large gains, we can offset against it as well. So having that clarity between ordinary income and capital gain income or capital gain losses or ordinary losses is critical to walk through with your advisor to make sure that the result is going to be what you think it is. So let me ask one more question on that because we've talked about ordinary income and we've talked about capital like stocks. What if I'm I'm working at Harris, for example, and I get a W-2 and I have ordinary income, but then I also have a rental property that's generating losses for me through, you know, depreciation and the expenses on the rental. Am I allowed to offset those two if I'm working, if I have a bunch of ordinary income or a W-2 income and then a rental property? How does that interplay? It depends. So give some examples. So some examples would be, you know, just a regular individual and say, uh, I think your example was you worked at Harris CPAs, right? right? So you're a CPA um, and you have a rental investment. So you would 
you would be able to deduct some of that loss depending on where your income comes in. So there are income limitations that allow you to deduct up to $25,000 loss per year. I believe it's one fifty. Yep. is the, the the limitation on that for taxable income. And now that's if you're a CPA. If you're an individual who works in the real estate profession, say you're a realtor or a contractor that produces real estate, then you are what's considered a real estate professional. And so then you'd be able to deduct more of the loss if it was over the 25000 Yeah, and, I, and I'll add to that one because I think it's a confusing rule and, and I've run into it quite a bit as far as real estate professional. It gets a little extensive into the 469 C7 rules and whatnot. But typically what you end up doing if you're a real estate professional is you, you're allowed to aggregate the properties to meet a certain hourly test. And then you may be able to deduct those losses as against ordinary income. Where I run into the situation a lot, I think, is, is with doctor clients, material-wise they're they're talking to their friends and financial advisors and saying, okay, I can appreciate the property for long term. There's going to be a great benefit to have a rental property. But what they don't understand is they don't necessarily get the deduction if it ends up being a loss for the year on the rental property because they their income typically exceeds that threshold and gets phased out of that $25,000 loss. It's not a downside necessarily. I sit down with doctors. I sit down with wealthier people who are not real estate professionals who, who don't otherwise qualify to take that loss. Say, so think of the future. So if they hold on to this rental property 10 years, 15 years, when they liquidate it, we get to free up in a taxable liquidation of that property all those losses. And what's kind of cool about that from a tax perspective from guys like me is that that offsets ordinary income first, and then I get to take advantage of the capital gain rates, which are generally a little more forgiving than ordinary rate. I totally agree. It's a great strategy to aggregate those losses. That's great. So what I'm what I'm also hearing would kind of open Pandora's box here a little bit with the rental question I asked, but we have a lot of different types of income that come into tax planning. And and it's not necessarily like we can just aggregate them all together. You know, sometimes we can, other times we can't really have to reach out and understand the different types of income and whether or not losses and income are going to be able to be offset, or if you're going to have to carry them forward in the future for, for future benefit. Correct. Yeah. So what other things from an individual standpoint, like from a timing standpoint, could you see, whether it be Ability to, to delay maybe receiving income, or if I look down itemized Schedule A, what are other ways that we could minimize our taxes? Yeah, just you know, if, going through the itemized deductions, the first thing that would pop out to me is the ABE election at the state level. So talked about this in our last podcast that you're able to elect at an entity level. Many of our taxpayers here, individual taxpayers, are receiving income from pass-through entities. And so we definitely want to make sure that we're taking advantage of the ABE election and the ability to deduct state taxes at the entity level and pass through that deduction to the individuals. So that that would be the first uh, thing that I would definitely look to to make sure that we're taking advantage of it. As far as the remaining deductions that are on the itemized deduction schedule, we have seen a lot of charitable contributions come to light recently where people have been you know, we've ha- we've had several years of good economy and people are doing very well. And so 
they want to have the ability to give to a charity, but they don't necessarily want to do it all in one year. So we have seen the use of DAFs or donor advised funds frequently, where an individual is able to make a contribution into a fund. They get a current year deduction for that contribution as a charitable contribution, which they can reduce their income by 60% in 2022. And then they get several years to determine which specific charity gets those funds. They carry those funds forward and they're able to distribute them to various charities as they wish, as they see fit. So it does give us the ability to reduce income in any one given year more than what they normally would have charitably done during that year. And then they can offset the next year's charitable contribution by using the fund. So in good years, you're not you, you can use these funds to to take to kind of maximize the deduction you want, but not necessarily have to give it to a bunch of different charities. You can spread it, you know, you can spread your charitable giving out over years, but kind of maximize your deduction in any given year by taking advantage of a DAF or, you know, foundation or Correct. other methods. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I think one thing you want to be careful of in those funds, and I'm reading a few articles out there, is just who does the fund and how it's monitored and whatnot. So just a consideration. Do your due diligence on the matter. We talked a little bit earlier about installment sales, at least in the last podcast during the business tax planning, we talked about installment sales. Why don't you give us a little bit more background on an installment sale, maybe from an individual standpoint, and, and where would they use it and how would that impact them? From an individual side, a lot of times it may come from a real estate sale. For example, a large capital gain. It has to be capital gains. Ordinary income type stuff doesn't work. If it's business assets or something like that, ordinary income recognition you have to deal with in year of sale. But the capital gain portion, for example, if I'm selling a business and I'm selling assets, I want to go to goodwill as much as possible. And then if I carry a note for capital gain treatment, then I can use this strategy. An installment sales strategy is to do a sale in, say, 2022, but I'm going to carry a note with terms, collateral, my risk tolerance on interest rate. And that's going to allow me to recognize tax as I receive the principal payment. And it and we go through a process, it's called a Form 6252 on individual return. But we determine what the gross profit percent is. So when we get that principal payment, we take it times that gross profit percent, and that's what we recognize on an ongoing basis, as well as the interest that we collect on it. So if I sell something and it's a capital gain but I'm going to I'm going to carry the note personally over several years I can match my tax with when I receive the principal on that note over years I don't have to recognize it all as a gain in this year that's that's the theory now there is an election to opt out of it say we do have a down year and where it makes more sense from an overall planning strategy to elect out of it and recognize it all in the given year but outside of that yes the theory is you can push it out to future years we've used that election to opt out in the past when we were convinced or knew that rates were going up could you opt out if you already had a capital loss as well and you could offset the two, or would you still opt in? You could opt out you could if opt you, out. if the gain was in the current year and you had the loss in the current year. So let's talk about opportunity zones. It's another uh, way to address capital gains that you have in the current year. Maybe walk us through a quick example of how you'd use or when you'd use an opportunity zone, and then give us some background on on how they work. 
So the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 established opportunity zones as a vehicle whereby individuals could reinvest the proceeds from a capital gain into a fund and not pay taxes on that reinvestment. So one of the major advantages in an opportunity zone over, say, a 1031 exchange, which is where you sell a property and then buy another property, is that you're only required to reinvest the gain portion of the funds that you receive. So if you have principal in a transaction, that principal does not need to be reinvested into the opportunity zone. Essentially what happens is after you sell the the asset for a capital gain, you are able to take the capital gain amount invested into an opportunity zone, which are areas of impact that were designated by all the governors of the states where individuals could invest in those areas and their gains would be deferred. And in some instances, they would have tax-free treatment on some of the gain. All of those investments mature in 2026. There is pending legislation to extend that to 2028, which we're watching carefully to make sure that we're aware of what, what is, is happening there. So the what we found as a popular way to do this is a lot of the brokerage houses, the real estate investment firms have funds where they've aggregated uh, individuals' funds together so that they could invest in those zones. Yeah, a little offshoot to that would be, you know, be critical. It can be short-term or long-term capital gains. It doesn't matter. It just has to be capital gains. Another thought is keep in mind that 180-day rule. So if I were doing some planning strategies and I had a big capital gain, short-term or long-term, and I took it later in a year, I could buy time till, say, June to reinvest that. So there are some planning opportunities there as well as far as timing. Excellent. So if I have a sale, say it's a million-dollar sale, and I have $300,000 in gain on the sale, in a 1031 transaction, I really need to exchange a million dollars into a new million-dollar asset. But in an opportunity zone, I have the ability to just exchange the $300,000 gain that I recognized. That's correct. And I'm going to end up having to pay that gain, the tax, the capital gains tax on that back at 2026 or if extended 2028. But I'll get the deferral of it. And then there's other tax advantages with these these opportunity zones as we go through. Really quick, a lot of people talk about, you know, they think of capital gains and they say, well, it's a 15% tax bracket. And there is kind of the tax brackets go up and you have, you know, 15 or 20% federal. You also have your state capital gains rates and different states are different aspects. I know like Idaho has a exemption for real property, right? You can reduce it. Whereas like California does not, but then you also have that net investment tax credit. Maybe just kind of walk through how all three of those interplay, you know, and when you're looking at deferring capital gains, why you would do something like that. And it gets a little complicated, I think, pretty quickly because it does depend upon how that property is used. So when you're referring to the net investment income tax, I think there's a lot of confusion out there that that's for investment gain. So if it was a business that you sold and had, say, an S corporation that flowed through capital gains from the sale of that business, it might not be subject to that 3.8% NII tax. Now, if you go out and you sell stock and have a capital gain, that's going to fall into that category to add that extra 3.8%. And real estate is kind of in that category a little bit, right? Yes, it can be. And I think a lot of confusion comes from that because in real estate rentals, when we have income, we generally have that qualified business income deduction 
calculation. That's a whole different rule that complicates things. So yes, in theory, most of your real estate, unless you're a real estate professional and otherwise meet some other requirements, you're probably going to be in that 3.8% addition to that. Now, you'd mentioned there are different brackets. A lot of people just think it's long-term capital gain rates are 15%, but you might end up in that 3.8% added to the 15%. Or if you go up even higher, and I believe it's in the north of 400,000, that you might end up with a 20% capital gain rate and a 3.8%. So you're kind of approaching that 24% on the federal side. The Idaho side, I'll add that you're referring to the Idaho capital gain deduction. That's on real estate in Idaho only. I've seen a lot of mistakes on returns where stock capital gains were reduced by 60%, but it's only for real estate and it has to be held more than 12 months, 12 months in one day. I think that thing, if you're looking at opportunity zones or different aspects of trying to, to minimize your capital gains, right? The reason we're looking at that is sometimes those rates can get up to close to 30%. Or if you're in other states that have higher tax rates, even more than that on a capital gains. And everyone, I think in their back of their mind thinks, oh, well, it's the lowest tax rate is capital gains. Well, that doesn't necessarily always hold true in these type of transactions, which is why opportunity zones and other areas are, are great you know, avenues for people when they when they have those kind of sales. Yeah, and there, to kind of touch back a little bit on itemized deductions, uh, there's consideration in, in contributions that you might consider donating your appreciated property to get the donation deduction and not recognize that capital gain. So there's strategies there that can be used many different ways by just giving the appreciated property to that charitable organization. There are ways to strategize around, I see a high use of charitable remainder trusts right now where they're kind of complicated, probably beyond the scope, but there are things that maybe you should consider when you're looking at your capital gains in order to avoid maybe some taxation possibilities. So give me an example for charitable contributions on how that, if I were to donate a piece of property that someone owns, or if I donate uh, stock that I have a lot of unrealized, you know, a lot of gain inside of it to a charity. How does that work from a tax standpoint? Appreciated stock's a lot easier because it's on a market and they don't require a formal appraisal. So that part's a little bit easier, but it's fair market value. I, When I'm talking to people, I usually use the Google or Apple example. I got, I paid a dollar for it. Now it's worth a million. And I get a million, if I donate it to charity, I get a million dollar donation deduction doesn't matter what my basis is in a tax base. I only paid a dollar for it, but I get a million dollar donation deduction. Now, what you have to look at, whether if it's appreciated property, is you have to consider the limitations. There are limitations on how much you can donate. Cash donations, as Robert mentioned, were at 60%. So if, if we may end up where that's only a 30% deduction, and when I refer to 60% or 30% limitations, I'm referring to your adjusted gross income, usually found on page one of your 1040, and you're limited to 30 or 60% of that number. So if I do have a Google stock, and then I do that, and I'm limited, do I get to carry it forward to the next year? Yes. The limitation on carry forwards with charitable donations is typically five years. I think that is important because we'll see a lot of charities, you know, C3s and different as they go through their year end annual giving and they'll be out there marketing to people to donate stock or to donate ways to get, you know, to raise funds for their charity. 
to let people know why they're doing that. You know, the tax advantage of that is you do get a deduction for the entire, whatever the value is of the date of the donation, but then you also don't have to pay the capital gains. Correct. On your tax return. So you kind of get two benefits for donating charity. You see a lot of your Google example or here in, in Boise, you, you know, Micron employees or some of the public companies where people have seen that appreciated stock that they have being able to donate it. You mentioned too on property, some people have seen that in property, but it's a little bit more complicated in that you're probably going out to get formal appraisals and there's all sorts of forms you have to sign with the return. And <laughs> right. Now, that's typically where the cost, administrative costs, so you have to weigh the cost benefit. But right. generally in a market like we've had where real estate's just gone through the roof, upside, it's generally worth it if you're going to donate it. But you do have to get go through the hoops. There are a lot of requirements you need to meet, in particular qualified appraisal. The appraiser needs to sign the non-cash donation form 8283, and the charity needs to sign it, that accepting the acknowledgement of the, the property as well. And there are a few other requirements in there that since it's over a certain threshold, you may even have to attach the qualified appraisal to the tax return. So in our last podcast, we had some business tax planning, but we have a lot of individuals that have Schedule C's, right? They're running their businesses and paying their tax through their individual tax return. Are there any differences between tax planning, you know, running that as a business or you know, running it's on two different returns or anything that you look at for those individuals that are kind of Schedule C focused or, or their entire business is being ran through their individual return? A lot of the planning opportunities that we have at the, you know, entity level, we have at the Schedule C level as well. So we start by, you know, evaluating the methods of accounting, making sure that we're taking the appropriate depreciation deductions for the assets that have been acquired and whether or not we can accelerate those deductions. Or in some instances, maybe we're able to go back and change the method to an appropriate method and do some work there. And then, yeah, it's just managing the deductions. The, the retirement plan contributions are available to Schedule C's as well. So a lot of it's the same. No, I'd agree. I think people get a little confused sometimes, at least the questions I get is somehow there's there's these major differences, but there really isn't. Excellent. So my last question for you guys relates to AMT or alternative minimum tax. And I know it's changed over the years, especially through the last, I think, Trump tax rules that came out. I mean, I think there's been some adjustments in the last couple acts as well, but maybe you could just explain. It's probably the most confusing aspect of individual taxes is people who are in the AMT world understanding what AMT is and how that impacts your planning if you are impacted by AMT at the end of each year. Sure. I think AMT, alternative minimum tax, is it's confusing to everybody. I think practitioners, I think the government authorities and whatnot, everybody, it's confusing and hard to understand. We actually have three different ways to compute taxes. Regular tax method, which is the marginal rates, the capital gains tax method, and the alternative minimum tax method. The interesting part about alternative minimum tax now is the reason you don't see it as much as you used to is the phase out of the exemption. That amount is north of, on a married filing joint return, a million dollars, for example. So unless our taxable income starts to get above that, you don't normally see that calculation. However, I'll talk out of the other side of my mouth that you still have to compute it 
even if you're below it, because there are a fair amount of credits that are still limited by the difference between alternative minimum tax calculation and regular tax calculations. Perfect. Thanks, David and Robert, for for coming today. I I think we did uh, touched on a bunch of topics as it relates to individual tax planning. You know, a lot of different aspects, whether it's capital gains, installment sales, and and this is the time of year where we're really starting and getting um, you know getting planned for the year end. But a lot of these topics can be done throughout the entire year, right? As as you sell different aspects, whether it's capital gain decisions, there's a lot of things that don't have to wait till the end of the year, which I think is important as we start this year and then actually go into next year. You're not just talking about 2022 tax planning, but you're looking forward at 2023 tax planning with your tax preparer, discussing what you think you're going to sell. It's always nice. I know from a CPA when we're told before the sale, what the sale is going to be so we can help them make you know better plans or better decisions with it as they go through the, the year. So, But I really appreciate the topics today. I hope that uh, as people go into the end of the year, they're, they're getting ready for their, their tax planning and can make decisions here that kind of help, I guess, maximize that right marginal tax bracket. Thanks again for, for coming today and appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for listening to Harris CPA's Accounting for Tomorrow. Stay tuned for new episodes each month. Podcasts are also available on our website at harriscpas.com slash podcasts. Any accounting business or tax advice contained in this podcast is not intended as a thorough in-depth analysis of specific issues, nor a substitute for a formal opinion, nor is it sufficient to avoid tax-related penalties. If you'd like, Harris CPAs would be pleased to perform the research and provide you with a detailed analysis of your specific situation.